throughout the prologue of uh, this glorious book in Proverbs there, these first nine chapters, which are Solomon's letters to his young son. And that's why these first nine chapters are so distinct and different from all of those individual Proverbs that you see from chapters 10 through 31. And in these lessons, Solomon has endeavored to communicate to his son the value of gaining wisdom, of getting wisdom. He's encouraged his son to follow in the ways of wisdom and to not forsake his teachings, not abandoning the teachings that his father has given him by pursuing folly and going after the ways of wickedness and those that do evil. And what Solomon does to help convey this to his son is he personifies wisdom. He, He presents to his son wisdom as a beautiful and attractive woman. Right? And he does that to gain her attention. What better way to teach a young man how to value wisdom, how to pursue wisdom, how to go after wisdom, how to marry wisdom, if not to portray her as this gorgeous, beautiful, smart woman that he needs to follow and that he needs to obtain. There's wisdom in that, isn't there? Right? And, and this is chapter 8, and this logically follows what we looked at last week in chapter 7. Don't try to separate these two chapters because they go hand in hand. Last week, we looked again at the last exhortation from Solomon to his son to not follow after the forbidden woman, the adulteress, right? Not not to pursue her, not to fall into sexual sin. And he was addressing especially what we call the dimwit, right? The gullible dimwit, the one who lacks sense, right? Doesn't have wisdom, is not committed to, to wisdom at all, and he is seduced by the adulteress. I'm going to talk about what that symbolizes a little bit more in a moment. And he's to, again, follow after Lady Wisdom. Now, these first nine chapters are foundational. And, and, and for us, sometimes we get tired of the repetition. We read through these first nine chapters like, my goodness, he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. And we know we have to do that with our kids, right? We have to repeat things over and over again because somehow... They don't hear us, or they have selective hearing, right? Or they quickly forget, right? But even as adults, we need to be reminded over and over again, wisdom's teaching, right? So don't get tired of that, because the goal uh, of wisdom for us is to love wisdom, because wisdom points us to the true wisdom, which is Christ, right? Wisdom from God and the wisdom of God, right? So we're going to look at this portion today, uh, these first 21 verses in four parts, all right? So we're going to break them up that way. We're going to look at the first five verses right now, looking at wisdom's speech. Let's read together. Hear the words of the living God. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way? At the crossroads, she takes her stand beside the gates. In front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries out. To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. These are the words of the Lord. Now, we saw something similar here in all the way back in chapter 1. Wisdom calling out. Wisdom making her case. Wisdom, we we said back then, was like a street preacher. She's out there evangelizing, right? She's out there spreading her message, preaching her gospel to anyone who would hear. Specifically then, she rebuked the 
the gullible and the fools who rejected her teaching. But here, there's a little bit different tact to that. Now, she's raising her voice. We saw in the last chapter another woman who raises her voice. The forbidden woman, the adulteress. Right? And, and even though that has to do with sexual sin, we've been talking about the forbidden woman as, as, as a placeholder term for all types of sin, for all sin and temptation, anything that would lure this young man, anyone, anything that would lure believers away from the way of wisdom and onto the path of folly. So when you see the adulteress, and we mentioned forbidden, forbidden woman, remember that is a general term for anything that can tempt us and seduce us and entice us away from wisdom, right? And, and in verses 11 uh, and 12 of chapter 7, we, we read that this forbidden woman is loud. She is brash. She is brazen. She is wayward and shameless. And she's out there broadcasting her message to try to lure the gullible in, those that lack sense. So we see here wisdom also preaching a message, also calling out. So they're both doing that. Both wisdom and, and the forbidden woman are making public appeals to the masses, to anyone who would listen to them. Both are appealing for the love and affection and attention of the uncommitted, gullible youth. But though they're both preaching, their messages could not be more different. They couldn't be further apart. Now, when you think of the messages, right, the, the messages proclaimed by the, our two prominent political parties, right, how vastly different those two messages are, well, wisdom's teaching and the forbidden woman's teaching are even further apart than that. They are day and night different. And their messages are a war of worldviews. They are conflicting ideas presented and cast out into the world to different ways of thinking, to different ways of living. Two messages, loud, both of them. Now, in our world today, it, would be, it feels like and it seems like the message of the forbidden woman is drowning out the voice of wisdom. Doesn't it feel like that? I mean, that, that's kind of what we hear the loudest in our world. There's a whole array of tools the, the adulteress here has to broadcast her message far and wide. You think of the, the, the mass media outlets, the news outlets out there that propagate fear and, and, and division and hatred, right? That message is loud. It's brazen. It comes from our uh, entertainment uh, sources through music and through social media platforms and movies, right? Drawing people away from the way of wisdom to follow after their own sensual desires, their own lustful appetites and say, hey, you know, you can have a consequence-free life. You can do whatever you want. Do what feels right to you. You see it, again, in our two primary political parties. We see it through the educational uh, institutions. We see it through uh, marketing outlets there that tell us how we can have this temporary fleeting happiness uh, by buying products and spending monies to look prettier, to look more handsome, to look more fit, to, to be, be more attractive, to, to be happy at any cost. Her message is loud. It's in your face and you can't escape it. Wherever you turn, whatever you listen to, that message is like she's got a mighty megaphone just kind of blaring that out. But don't for a moment think that wisdom is taking a back seat. 
that wisdom is being silenced somehow, and, and, and that message isn't getting out at all. No, she hasn't. We find the forbidden woman in chapter 7. We saw her in the street, right? We saw her uh, in the marketplace. We saw her at every corner lying in wait for the next victim. She's in the world. She's working covertly from behind the scenes, in the shadows, in the cover of darkness. But look where the scripture tells us that wisdom is broadcasting her message from. It's not from the darkness. It's not from the shadows. It's not from some dingy corner in some back alley. Wisdom, we're told here, is on the heights besides the ways. On the heights. I mean, that evokes to you already that this message is elevated. This is not like the message of the forbidden woman. It is heavenly. It is from another realm. It's at the highest point of the city. Maybe she was on the wall of the city, just preaching her message, standing above everyone else, calling out to the masses, calling out to the commoners to listen and to follow. Would have been one of the most visible places to to, to share a message from, to be heard by all. She's beside the way. What is the way? The way has been a metaphor that we've been looking at throughout all of Proverbs. The way speaks to the two paths in life that one can choose. And there are only two paths. The way of wisdom or the way of folly. The way of wisdom which leads to life. The way of folly which leads to destruction. And wisdom is found on the way. Where people will make this choice of which lifestyle they will pursue. Wisdom or folly. We're told here in this passage that wisdom is at the crossroads where she takes her stand. Think about what the crossroads represent. Crossroads is a place of intersection. It's a place where a decision needs to be made. Do I go left? Do I go right? Decisions are made there. Whether to follow wisdom or folly. And there is no third way. There is no alternative. And there at that intersection stands wisdom pleading for those to follow her. She plants her flag there. And she's beside the gates. What happens beside the gates? We've looked at this before. This is where the masses congregate. This is where there's transaction of commerce. People are buying and selling and politics is taking place. She's at the entrance of the portals. Again, the gates. Who met there? The city elders met there. This is where they heard grievances. This is where they settled disputes. This is where they passed judgments on matters. Wisdom is there calling out and crying out and pleading for those to follow after her. You can see the contrast between Lady Wisdom and the Forbidden Woman here. Both are everywhere, but their message and their methods are not the same. One entices and seduces and deceives as in the dark, and the other has a clear message, a compelling message, a persuasive and authoritative message, and she operates in the light from the heights on the way at the crossroads at the city gates. Now look at her primary audience in view here. Verses 4 and 5. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Now wisdom's call is going out naturally to young men. That is, these first letters are addressed to. That's the primary audience. A larger audience would have been all of the youth of Israel. Proverbs is instructional wisdom literature for the young people of Israel, of their time in ancient Israel here. But there's a, a more general sense in which this is addressed to. It's to everyone. 
the children of man. Who's that? Well, that's everybody else, right? Everyone needs to hear this message. Not just young men who are going to follow their lustful and fleshly and carnal appetites, but everybody needs to hear the message of wisdom with no regard to race or gender, socioeconomic status, whether they're rich, poor, lowly uh, in life, or of an elevated uh, status, right? All are to hear her message, right? But now she kind of narrows that aim. That's the zoomed out view, but it's it's kind of zoomed in now, and she addresses two specific people again. The first is the gullible, which we've already talked about. The simple. These are the immature, those who've not made a commitment to follow wisdom. They can still be swayed one way or another. Which means, though, that they are still moldable. There's still a chance for the gullible to learn wisdom and to follow wisdom and change that trajectory of life. The other is the fool. The fool, she says, needs to learn sense, needs to learn common sense, something we desperately need in our world today. She invites both of them to learn. To learn. To enroll in wisdom school. In her school of discipleship. You think about that general call going out to everyone. And specifically the gullible. And and those who lack sense. And the fool. Think of the general call that goes out. For people to follow Jesus Christ. The general call that goes out for people to enter into discipleship with him. To learn from him. To follow him. To learn his teachings and apply them. Ultimately, we know that wisdom points us to Jesus Christ, who is wisdom from God. So we can see here this this spiritual application in wisdom's call. To commit to wisdom is a spiritual commitment. And I don't want you to miss that. It's a spiritual commitment, not an intellectual one. We, We kind of dismiss that early on in our teachings here. Wisdom isn't just about getting a big head, learning a bunch of facts and details and know how to regurgitate them. Wisdom is, the, is a skill. It's the skill of living rightly. And it's a spiritual commitment that's made. It's not just about education. We all know people who are very smart on a subject, right? I, like they're brilliant when it comes to that subject and they are dumb at living life. We, we all know people like that. That might be you. Don't raise your hand, right? But we all know that. We, it's just not about what's in the head, Right? It's how we apply wisdom to our life to live in, in the way of wisdom that is life. But here we see that even the simple can respond to wisdom's call and learn. Right? They, can, they can come out from their ignorance and grow into maturity. And that is good news, praise God. There is hope for all of us in that. The sad truth that we know is that not everyone responds to wisdom's call. Not everyone who hears her cry responds with, yes, I will follow you. Not everyone responds to the general call to follow Jesus. What do we see in the Gospels? Him calling people to follow him time and time again. Did everyone follow him? No, sadly, many did. We see the great examples, right, in in his call to Simon Peter and James and John and, and Levi and others to follow him. And what do they do? They immediately drop everything. They see his value and his worth. They respond to the call and they follow Jesus. Then we have other examples like 
his call to the rich young ruler who approaches him. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God and eternal life? And Jesus says, here's what you got to do. Follow all the commandments. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And what does he do? He goes away sad and dejected and does not follow Jesus. We have these admonitions in Scripture to not delay when we hear the call of salvation. Hebrews 3.15, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What rebellion? It was the rebellion of the people of God who hardened their hearts. But listen, for us, do not delay, do not dismiss, do not harden your heart. If you hear the call, everyone's responsibility then is to, is to respond Because only Christ can save us. But that call is a call that he makes to us first. We don't initiate our calling out to the Lord. All we do in response to his call first. Romans 10.13 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we can only call on the name of the Lord after he calls us. We can't call until he calls us first through the gracious and effectual call of his spirit. And when you hear it, our obligation is to respond, to follow him. Let's look at the exhortation of wisdom here. Verses 6 through 11. Hear, and that's a command. Listen, for I will speak noble things. And from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Solomon's saying here, listen. Here's why, son, you need to listen to wisdom. Listen to her voice because her speech is vastly different than the other voice that you're going to be hearing. The voice of the forbidden woman, the adulteress. The speech of the forbidden woman is sweet at the beginning. Right? We talked about her honey lips and her smooth, seductive talk. Right, To tickle the ears, to tell the young man everything that he wants to hear. Right, Stroke his ego. Make them feel special, all of that. But here we have the end of the speech of the adulterous woman is bitter death. And then we have the rival voice, wisdom speech, which demands attentiveness. It demands discipline in the beginning. But the end of the matter, the end of it all is life. And he's got to pay attention to wisdom. Verse 6, hear, for I will speak Noble thing. She speaks audibly. She can't be ignored. And she's demanding a a decision from her hearer. To listen, to hear, to accept wisdom's teaching. It's not just to hear it, but to actually embrace it and accept it. And why can she demand attention? Why can she demand allegiance from those who hear her? Well, She tells us. Because all she speaks is what is righteous and of the truth. What's righteous and of the truth. Look at all of these synonyms right here piled on to this aspect of righteousness and truth. Noble things. From her lips come what's right. From her mouth she utters truth. All the words of her mouth are righteous. 
Nothing twisted, nothing perverse, nothing wicked, right? There's no wickedness on her lips. That's an abomination to her. What wisdom speak is, is, is speaks is spoken in righteousness. What wisdom speaks is morally and ethically true. What wisdom speaks is the truth. It's the truth about how the world works. There's no error in her speech. And what wisdom speaks is what is in the best interest of all of humanity. We know that's God's word. It's righteous, it's true, and it's free from error. In verse 9, she says they were all straight. All of her words, all of her teachings, all of the utterances of her mouth and what crosses her lips is right to him, straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Those who embrace wisdom, who find her, can see her words are straight and right. Only this person can recognize the, the truth of wisdom's words. But those who do not make that spiritual commitment to wisdom, right, to follow her, what do they do? They take her plain and truthful and right speech and distort it and twist it and pervert it. This is what the world does, who ignores the wisdom of God, who rejects the wisdom of God. It's why there's a war on truth in our world today. Which is why everyone's like, well, what's truth? Well, whatever I want it to be. That's not true. There can't be truth and an alternative version of truth that is equally true. There's truth and everything else is deception, distortion, lies. Error and lies multiply to distort the truth. To deconstruct the truth. And ultimately to attempt to destroy it. So what do you have? Spiritually blind people who reject the call of wisdom here. Believing Lies and errors. Sometimes we marvel, right? Those of us who do know the truth, the truth of God's word, who, who know Christ, who is wisdom from God, and we look at how, how can people be so blind to, to blatantly embrace all, all of these lies and errors in the world? Well, this tells us because they've rejected wisdom. And in rejecting, rejecting wisdom automatically, they can't see that it's straight. They can't see that it's right. They can't see that it is true. Now, the forbidden woman's speech is wicked, deceptive, crooked, full of flattery to deceive. But wisdom's speech is right and true. It's not twisted and crooked or distorted. We know that our world is marred by the effects of sin. So our world is crooked. Our world is disordered. Sin causes everything in our world to be distorted. Many don't know that. Many live as if that's not true. And most don't know why the world is broken, but everyone longs for it to be made straight. People know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, and they want it to be straight, but it's all crooked and it's all messed up. But wisdom is the only thing that can make what is crooked straight. Wisdom is the only thing that can bring order to our world. And the one who follows wisdom, the call of wisdom, understands this. That wisdom's teaching is the straight edge. It is the ruler that we are to align everything up against. It's the plumb line of truth and what is right in our world. There is no truth apart from that. And we know that that wisdom is Jesus Christ. He came speaking what is righteous and true. There was nothing that came out of his mouth that was twisted or perverse or corrupt speech. Jesus himself declared that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except 
through him. He also said that we would know the truth, which is to know him, and that truth would set us free from our bondage to sin. When you think of how John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, came preaching and proclaiming and announcing that the kingdom of heaven was now at hand, there was, there was the, this one coming who would bring a straightening to the world, right? who would be the ultimate leveler, who would bring salvation, who would end this crookedness. And we see this promise in Isaiah uh, played out here that, that is referenced here in Luke chapter 3, 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Listen, listen to this. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Look, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It is one of the most glorious promises in all of Scripture that what has been made crooked will be made straight. And we see that through through the whole narrative, the whole story of God's Word from creation, fall, redemption to the ultimate consummation of all things. What happened in the creation? In the creation, we find God walking with man. All in God's creation was straight and level and right. But with the fall and the consequences of the fall, God no longer could walk with man. And everything that was once straight is now crooked. But in the glorious redemption that Jesus Christ came to bring and fulfill, what do we have now? Christ, the incarnate Son of God, walking among us again. The one who is straight among the crooked. To make the crooked now straight. And ultimately in the consummation of all things. We have God once again walking with man. Dwelling with man. And all is straight again. There's no better story than that. There's no more glorious reality than that brothers and sisters. That's what wisdom. The wisdom of God will produce and bring to us. Now verse 10 shifts from wisdom speech to another command. Uh, to choose wisdom. That if we listen to wisdom, if we hear and follow wisdom, if we choose wisdom, instead of silver and gold, wisdom will unlock all of her treasures for us. And her treasures are greater than all of the finest jewels that man can desire to possess. This is a big deal. We're going to look at this again at, uh, in the last few verses of the passage that we're looking at today in 18 through 21. But when we go after wisdom... We get wisdom's reward. That's the promise. That's the promise. And Solomon's exhortation is that we don't make the pursuit of riches and wealth our aim in life. But when we make the aim of our life the pursuit of wisdom, those things follow. Those things follow. Do you value wisdom? Do you value the wisdom of God, which is Jesus Christ? God's word said are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom. And knowledge. Now let's look at wisdom's attributes. Verses 12 through 16 here. Wisdom is continuing her discourse here. But notice the shift from you to I. She's addressing the gullible and the fools. But now she's talking here about something about herself. Her attributes. 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. And I find knowledge and discretion. 
The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil. And perverted speech, I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. So wisdom continues and this shift now from her direct speech to expressing her valuable benefits. To what she has to offer and how more importantly, she communicates what she has, what she has that is valuable, her valuable benefits to those who will value her. She's talking here about her attributes and the attributes that she shares with all those who love her. I'm going to pause here for a moment to talk about God's attributes, the attributes of God. And God's attributes are what make God, God. We talk about God's attributes as, as, it's, as if it's something that God has that are part of his nature. But that is an incorrect way of looking at that. God does not possess attributes. God is his attributes. Right? That's very important. Sometimes we talk about God having power and God having mercy and God having omniscience and, and, and God being eternal and having eternality. But that's an inaccurate way to express those things. He is those things. He doesn't have those things. God is whatever he has. God has his divine essence and his attributes are his essence. We call that the doctrine of divine simplicity. When we speak of God being simple, we're not saying that he's like basic or simple like Proverbs uses that term. We're talking about him simple as meaning that he's not a composite being. He's not made up of various parts that make him God. He's not the sum of all of his parts like we are. When we talk about humans, we talk about us having a hand and we have a heart. We have limbs. We have a head. Some of us have a brain. You know, those kind of things. And we say all of those things together then is what makes us humanity. Well, God doesn't just have love and mercy and, and kindness and he's going to add himself uh, a satiety and he's not going to add to himself omniscience and omnipresence and, and infinitude and all of these things. And now because he has all those things, now he's God. No, he is all those things. He doesn't have all those things. So we want to say, we want to have right language when it comes to this because it informs our, not just our theology, but the way we live this out and approach God. It's not right to say that God has omniscience. It's right to say that God is omniscient. It's not right to say that God has goodness, but rather that he is goodness or he is good. Not that he has wisdom, but that God is wisdom. Now, some of these attributes, some of these perfections, God graciously shares those with his creatures, with his creation. And we talk about attributes that can be shared or not shared with this creation as communicable attributes or incommunicable attributes. Right? It's very simple. Those that can be communicated, those that are not communicated. Communicable attributes are those that are true of God, that are possessed by God, but in some partial and limited way, right, he shares those on his creatures, his image bearers. They're reflected upon his image bearers. So we have some attributes that are part of our existence, like love. We can show kindness and mercy. There is just 
justice that we do, right? There's a measure of righteousness that we can also walk in. These are things that God is and are reflected upon us, albeit in an imperfect, limited, and finite way. Those are communicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes are those, again, that are true of God, but are not reflected on us, are not shared with us. Anyone here omniscient? Know everything? I know you think you know everything, but that's not what I'm asking. Do you know everything, right? Can you be everywhere one time? Do you possess true eternality? You always were and you always will be. No, none of us. We don't share those, those particular uh, uh, attributes of God. But we know here something about wisdom, that God is wisdom, and he, he, he has shared a limited portion of his wisdom with his creation. This attribute, wisdom, communicates this upon those who love her. Now, there's two ways that we're going to look at that, through a common grace, but also a special grace as well. Now, verse 12 we see starts with I wisdom. And she's going to express why she's valued, why she is to be desired, because she's wisdom. This is the essence of her character. And she is a communicable virtue because all throughout the father's lesson, what is he telling the son? Wisdom is something you can have. Wisdom is something you can obtain. You are to get wisdom, get insight, pursue her, follow her, embrace her, marry her, know her. She's a communicable attribute of God that can be obtained. And she's several virtues that are closely associated with her. She says here she dwells with prudence. Some of your translations say shrewdness, right? She dwells with prudence, knowledge, and discretion. And where you see wisdom at work, you're going to see all of these other virtues together with her. We've said skill, uh, wisdom is the skill of living rightly. And so with that, we need these particular things, don't we? We need shrewdness. Shrewdness is the ability to know when to do something and when not to do something. The shrewd person knows how to act. The shrewd person, we sometimes think of shrewdness in a negative way, but it's not. This person can discern their actions and know when to act and when not to act. You need knowledge. You need knowledge in order to apply information correctly for the right solution. We need discretion for wise decision making and wise planning. All of these things are necessary for the practical application of wisdom in our life. Now we see in the Gospels the perfect application of wisdom and these virtues in Jesus Christ. Isaiah again prophesying. There's so much in Isaiah that parallels this wisdom teaching here. Uh, about the wisdom of God in Jesus. But Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Listen to what it says about Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of, look, wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All things said about wisdom, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And how will he apply this wisdom? He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's brilliant. This this is what we see in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. We see it most notably in his interactions with the religious leaders. Notice he doesn't deal with them always the same way, does he? There's moments where he just fires off a question at them and doesn't answer their questions. There's other times when he puts the smackdown on, right? There's other times where he has remained silent. He possessed wisdom and these virtues of discretion and shrewdness and knowledge and knew how to apply them. We see that in his interaction with his followers and those who were seeking him out. We don't see him apply the same thing in the same way every single time. Wherever wisdom dwells, we see these virtues clearly applied and we see them most perfectly and clearly in Christ. You and I need this kind of practical wisdom, brothers and sisters. We need it. We need it. How often do we speak out of turn? How often do we say something and immediately like regret it and wish we could kind of pull that sucker back out? Many times, right, have we acted without gathering information and made impulsive decisions which, which have not yielded a good outcome to our life. We all do that. We all do that. How often have we misread people and their intentions? We've lacked this practical wisdom, the wisdom of living rightly, knowing how to respond and when to respond and, and, and how to get information and how to, how to make wise evaluations, how to read people rightly. Wisdom helps us do that. And that we've seen in Jesus Christ. He taught his disciples the practical application of wisdom. Matthew 10, 16, he tells them as he's sending them out, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, what do they need to do? Be shrewd. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Discerning. Shrewd. Evaluate the people that you're going to. Observe. Learn. Listen. Know how to apply wisdom and preach the good news. And do it from a place of righteousness and love. We can do that. We've seen those people who do preach the good news, but it doesn't come, they don't come across innocent as doves, right? They're unkind. They, they don't know how to measure their words and how to speak properly, right? The word of God's a sword. Sometimes it's to be used to cut, but also to heal. And we don't know how to do that without wisdom. So we need this kind of wisdom from above. Verse 13, we're reminded again of God's hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. We know in chapter 1, what's the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point, the foundational aspect of wisdom to fear God, to have a reverential awe of God, a love for God. And here it says, if you have that, you hate what is evil. An indispensable and essential quality of wisdom is to hate evil evil. We looked at that in Proverbs chapter 6. There are things that the Lord hates. Oh, isn't God love? Yes. But that does not mean that there aren't things that he hates that are opposed to love. And this is important for us to know. God does not hate like we hate. Our hate 
is often tainted by our selfishness, by our sinfulness, and by our lack of wisdom. But God's hatred is always just and right and perfect, pure, holy, and true. He doesn't hate like we do, but he does hate. There are things he hates. We talked about this that I know some people were bothered by, but there are people God hates. He hates evildoers. I'm not making that up. God says that clearly. In Proverbs, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, throughout Scripture. He hates the wicked. He hates those who do abominable things. He hates those who hate wisdom. Evildoers, right? He hates the arrogant, it says here, in the way of evil. So let me ask you a question. If you claim to love God, do you hate what God hates? If we love what God loves, then we must hate what God hates. Because we cannot claim to love God and love the things He hates also. What does 1 John say? If we love the world, then the love of the Father is not in us at all. It can't be. If you have the fear of the Lord, you will hate what He hates. You'll hate what He hates. The lie of the progressive, uh, the progressive Christian gospel is that you must love everyone. And you must love them all equally. The same way. Just love your neighbor. What if my neighbor's a pedophile and does wickedness? Still got to love your neighbor. What if my neighbor is, is wicked and evil and loves to kill babies and relishes in it and shedding innocent blood? I'm still supposed to love him? Yeah, you're supposed to love him all the same. That's garbage. That's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. God does not love everyone and everything equally. If you've bought that lie, you're mistaken. He does not love those that are in Christ the same way he loves everyone in the world. And the scripture bears that out. You cannot say that God loves everything equally and then say that he loves wickedness and perverse things and corrupt things the same way he loves what is right and good and pure and holy and righteous in this world. Don't get this twisted up. Don't buy these lies. Wisdom teaches you this. There are things that he hates. And if we have the love of God in us, we will hate those things as well. We'll hate perverted speech. We'll hate what is false. We'll hate what is a distortion of the truth. In verse 14, it tells us that wisdom has a treasury full of virtues that she bestows upon those who love her. And I want you to look at this cluster of attributes listed here. Counsel. In, in verse 14, sound wisdom, insight, strength. Right? These are all things that God has, possesses, that God is. Job 12, 13, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. It's the same list of attributes. Wisdom has all the counsel of God. That's what we need. That is what we need above anything else in life. The counsel of God Wisdom has that in her storehouses. Now, the Lord in his common grace has granted to humanity a measure of wisdom so that the world doesn't completely go off the rails. And you can praise God for that, right? That God has, in this communicable attribute of wisdom and common grace, there is found a measure of wisdom out there, right? For the flourishing of society, for, for the cultivation of the common good. If not, what a horrific world this truly would be. 
He gives wisdom, we see there in 15 through 17, so that rulers and those who govern can do things for the common good and for the flourishing of society, right? Wisdom, all wisdom, any wisdom is God's wisdom. And there cannot be any wisdom apart from him because he is wisdom. All God's truth, we can say, right? All truth, rather, is God's truth. Why? Because he is truth. Doesn't have truth, he is truth. So, anywhere you see truth expressed in the world that comports with what we know to be true about God and what he's revealed can only come from him, but it's not found apart from him. Anywhere you see wisdom and truth is because of God's benevolence, even if the world doesn't recognize it, and it often does not, right? When rulers and kings and governors do what is right and just, what is that if not a reflection of this communicable attribute? Of God. Now we know that not every ruler does what is just and right, but oftentimes they surprise us here and there, right? And and that's a good thing when we see that. But no one can rule apart from God's sovereign and providential appointment. Scripture teaches us what does he do? He sets up kings and he deposes kings. He raises up and he brings down according to what? A whim? No. According to his divine purposes, according to the counsel of his will and what he's decreed, he does these things. There are those who are in power because God has purpose to prosper a nation. For a time, for a season, there's a reason. Then there are those who are in power because God has purpose to punish a nation. Because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience. We see that with Israel. We see that with his own chosen people Right? In the Old Testament, this is what God does. There was a season, there was a time, he raised up the kings, a godly line of kings, but most of them were wicked. Most of them led the people into idolatry and all sorts of of perverse things, and God punished them. God raises up pagan kings to discipline his people. He raised up Pharaoh. He raised up Cyrus. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar. He raised them all up, and he set some aside as well. It's not a stretch to say that most of the people who hold to the highest political offices in the country and in the world are wicked and corrupt. Because when people get in power, apart from Christ, what do they want? More power. What do they use that power for? Selfish gain. What do they use that power for? The advancement of wickedness. What do they use that power to suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness? We all need to look further than our own administration and our own uh, leaders in our country today. Wickedness, corruption, right at the highest levels, they're opposed to God. But don't forget that God is sovereignly in control over all of the affairs of men. Imagine a world where he were not in control. Imagine depravity unrestrained in the world. I don't think we can. Whatever the darkest, grimmest, most horrific picture you can paint of unrestrained wickedness and depravity pales in comparison to what the reality of that would be if God were not in control. Sovereignly ordaining things in this world for his purposes. We don't know what those are. We don't know all of them. We know the eternal purposes. We know the outcome of it. But we don't know how he does the things that he does and not violate his holiness, his righteousness and purity and not sin 
and still be in control of all these things. We would do well to rehearse Psalm 2. The psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. And then what does it say about God? He sits in heaven and he laughs. He laughs and he holds them in derision. Well, they can't thwart God. He's in control. He's over them. He's sovereign. He's supreme and Lord of all. With that, though, I will admonish us, you know, who continually just speak evil of our leaders and not pray for them. You need to pray for them. You need to pray for our leaders. We want godly leaders. We want those who will, will rule with wisdom. We need leaders with wisdom, the wisdom from above, and to be able to govern in a way that is just. So in God's common grace, even unbelievers can exercise some wisdom for the common good. And that's a good thing. And we praise God for that. But it cannot be spiritual good. They cannot do spiritual good. Why? Because this common grace of wisdom cannot save. All it can do is point to the one who can. Let's close with these last few verses through 21 on wisdom's reward. 17 through 21. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Love that. Verse 17, I love those who love me. There's an intimacy Right there in this relationship with wisdom. It's an intimacy required to move from this common grace to this saving and life-giving grace. To love God is to love wisdom. To love wisdom is to love God. What does wisdom do? Beckon us to love her. To love wisdom and, and the God that she represents. And the promise is that those who seek her will find her. Wisdom's not going to remain hidden, elusive, right? Those who love her, those who seek her, will find her. Do you love wisdom? When we receive wisdom's teaching, when we, with great affection, take it into our heart, heart and take God's word into our heart, it's assimilated into our character. It works its way in us. It transforms us. It changes us. And the wisdom offers herself to all of humanity Only those whose hearts have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and respond to the efficacious call can truly love her. The whole world doesn't love wisdom. Just the whole world does not love God. Those who love wisdom get wisdom's reward. Look what it talks about here. Enduring and righteous wealth, riches, and honor. This is how lavish wisdom's love is, that she rewards those who love her this way. Well, is this enduring wealth and riches and honor? Is that something we get here now? Yeah, it possibly might be. But we know ultimately it will be, right? For all of us who are in Christ Jesus. She loves this way. Proverbs teaches us that riches and and wealth and honor are not evil in and of themselves. It's when that becomes your pursuit. When your aim in life is the enrichment of yourself, 
When your aim in life is the pursuit of amassing all sorts of material things apart from the knowledge and wisdom of God, well, that's evil. But when our aim and our pursuit is wisdom, it's Christ, then he adds all these things to us. You seek the things that are valuable to God, you will find his blessing there. Matthew 6.33 tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. Then what will be added to us? All these things. Enduring wealth, riches, the things that we need. Everything God wants to bless us with. Here and of course then. Those who walk with wisdom on the way of righteousness and the paths of justice are granted, God's word says here, an inheritance. How important was an inheritance in ancient times? We like inheritance now, right? We, we want to lay up an inheritance for our children, but it's also nice to receive an inheritance. But in ancient times, it was of supreme importance. Whether you received an inheritance or didn't really marked your life forever. Like the destiny of your life was set with whether you received an inheritance or one was not left for you, right? How important. You see that in Genesis. Think, look at the story of Jacob. It's all about inheritance and how it marked his life. And wisdom's inheritance here depicted uh, uh, through this inheritance is a type of the glorious inheritance spiritually that we all receive in Christ. And no other religion promises an inheritance like this or the blessings in this life as well as the next like our faith does. Most religions are what? About doing more, working harder, trying harder. Doing everything I can, doing good works, giving and almsgiving and all of these things in the hopes that maybe when I pass on to the next life, I will be rewarded somehow. But I'm not really sure if I will be. But not our faith. We receive an inheritance by the grace and goodness and mercy and kindness of our God in Christ Jesus. And look at the substance of this inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance. Look at the quality of it. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's an inheritance, a spiritual inheritance and glory that is ours, that won't be corrupted, that won't fade away, that won't be stolen, right? And it's secure. Ephesians 1.11 says that in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. Look at that. We have, not we will obtain. We have obtained. It's already already ours. And what does he do? That for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who love him, who have who have a rightful claim to this enduring wealth, they're in no way are going to ever be denied their inheritance, their rich inheritance, right? And the guarantee that God gives us that we'll one day possess this inheritance that we have now by faith, that's already ours by faith, is that God has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. It's as good as done. 
We won't be denied it. Oh, yeah, here in the natural, right, someone can change their will and disinherit someone. But if we're in Christ Jesus, we will never be disinherited. We will have what he says we already have in him. So what are we to do in closing? What are we to do when we have this call of wisdom and we're called to love her and those who love her, she loves and she'll reward Because we all know we love imperfectly. We love God imperfectly. We know we should love God more, but but we don't. We know we should seek Him, but, but we don't. We lack wisdom. We lack knowledge. We lack understanding. We stumble and fumble about life. We make unwise decisions. The speech that comes out of our mouth is not speech that honors and glorifies God. And is not the speech of Lady Wisdom, but that of the forbidden woman at times. What are we to do? Because we fail in this, don't we? we? We don't live up to the kind of wisdom that we know we should. But thanks be to God, there's one who did. Christ Jesus. We're to ask God for wisdom. James instructs us to do that. If anyone lacks it, Ask, ask, trusting in Jesus Christ, leaning into Christ who is wisdom from God for us. We need to believe the gospel's promises. We need to believe what the gospel says about us and what we have in Christ and who we are and what he has done for us. Only then do we grow in our love for God and his word. The scripture tells us that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. How? By beholding Christ. The more we gaze at Christ, the more we look to Christ, the more we trust Christ, we're being changed. Wisdom is coming into our heart and changing us to be more like him. He's blessed you, brothers and sisters, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has granted you enduring wealth in Christ Jesus, who is enduring wealth and treasure. So what I want to do as we close this message today is I want to pray for us. I want to pray the great apostolic prayer found there in Ephesians 1 for us. Would you go ahead and stand? Father, thank you for wisdom. Thank you for Christ. That if we love you, wisdom comes to us. If we love wisdom, we love God. If we love God, we get wisdom. Thank you for that, God. Now I pray for your people. The words from Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 22. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Father, I pray that 
for your people today, for myself, Lord, that you would grant us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that we would grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we would increase in wisdom from God, Lord, as we look into your holy word, as we study Christ, as we study his teaching, as we study what you have done for us, as we hide that word in our hearts, Lord, that we would grow in the spirit of wisdom having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. And what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ Jesus when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named and over all of those, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You've placed all things under his feet and given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Grow us in love for you, O God. Teach us to hate the things that you hate, to value the things that you value, to hold in high esteem the things that you hold in high esteem, but the things that you call wicked and abominable, that we would hate those things as well. Give us this kind of wisdom, God. Drive folly far from our lives and from our hearts, oh God, that we would love Jesus so intimately, so deeply as only you can produce. There may be some here, Lord, who have not responded to the call, the gospel call, and I pray now by your spirit that they would respond. They They would come to this knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ. That they would embrace in their hearts wisdom from God and the wisdom of God, which is Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord.